If you got a Bible with you tonight, I want you to grab it and turn to Luke chapter 19. Just turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 19 and hold that ready for just uh, a little while. Uh, I also want to welcome everyone who is joining us online. I want to give a special greeting to you, whether you are someone here in our immediate area or maybe you're watching while you're away on spring break, someplace warm and fun, or maybe you're watching and you don't live in this area at all. We just want you to know how... Uh, thrilled we are to have you as a part of our worship experience. Before we turn our attention to the message tonight, I do, I want to just echo uh, the last part of MPTV and uh, share with you how, how wonderful I think this video devotion series will be uh, this next week, beginning on Monday morning at 9.30 and going all the way through Friday. Uh, we have uh, had our staff write and then share some different Easter devotions. They're just two minutes long. I've previewed all of them, and they're all just really excellent. And so I encourage you to make sure uh, that you take the time to watch those uh, Monday through Friday. And as Johnette said in MPTV, be sure and share those uh, with your family and friends. It'll be a great, great blessing. Uh, we're beginning a new series, obviously, this weekend called The Road to Easter. And as we begin, we're going to talk about the road to Jerusalem, something that Jesus has been talking about for some time. In fact, as you've got your Bible open there to Luke chapter 19, you can just look back to Luke chapter 18 at verses 31 and uh, all the way through verse 34, and you can see that Jesus has been talking about this road to Jerusalem. He's, uh, Luke writes for us, beginning in verse 31 of Luke 18, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. This isn't the first time Jesus has told his disciples about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem on this final trip to Jerusalem. In fact, this is the third time, the third and the final time. In the Gospels, he told them right after Peter's great confession in Matthew chapter 16. He told them again after the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. And he tells them here uh, that he is going to Jerusalem and that he is going to die. And even though they failed to understand what he was talking about, they are just days away from understanding it in the most personal way as they travel with him on this road to Jerusalem, which was the first leg of Jesus' final journey to the cross. Did you know that back in the 1950s, somewhere about the mid-1950s, that Parker Brothers, Parker Brothers, the creator of many, many popular board games like Monopoly, Risk, Sorry, and so many more, you know that they came out with a board game for church families that was actually called Going to Jerusalem? I don't know if any of you are old enough to really remember that or if you had that. I've got some pictures. You can see what they look like. I took these pictures off of eBay where this is about the only place that you can find this game anymore, this game called Going to Jerusalem. It was a lot like Monopoly except your playing piece wasn't a top hat or a Scotty dog. In going to Jerusalem, you got the opportunity to be a real disciple because your playing piece was a little plastic man wearing a robe with a beard, wearing sandals, and carrying a staff. That was your playing piece. And in order to move across the board, what you had to do was roll the dice and then answer questions 
in the little black New Testament Bible that came with the game. The game always started in Bethlehem. That makes sense. And from Bethlehem, you made stops at the Mount of Olives, at Bethsaida, at Capernaum, at the Sea of Galilee, at Nazareth, and in Bethany. But here's the deal. If you rolled the dice really well and you answered all your questions, you could make it all the way around the board until you arrived in Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. But you never got to the crucifixion, which means you never got to the resurrection. The game ended at the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. There were no demons that possessed people along the way. There were no hateful, angry religious leaders. There were no crowds that were selfish. There was no criticisms, no bad moments. All you did was work your way through the nice stories of the Gospels. It was a safe adventure that was perfectly suited for a Christian family out on a Sunday afternoon walk with Jesus. But as nice as that sounds, and maybe even as nostalgic as it sounds, here's the truth that can't be ignored. Walking with Jesus is not something meant for plastic disciples who do nothing more than look up Bible verses in the New Testament. Because if you're going to walk with Jesus as a disciple, then at some point you're going to be confronted with the reality of the cross. And you're going to be confronted with the reality and the seriousness of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24 when he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so as we draw near to Easter, just a week away, the first thing you have to do if you're a disciple is you've got to genuinely walk with Jesus. You've got to follow Jesus on the road to Jerusalem because that's where it all begins. And so if you've got your Bible open to Luke chapter 19 and you're able tonight, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. Our text is Luke chapter 19, verse 28 down through verse 48. It's a little bit longer text than what we normally have, but you follow along with me as I read from my Bible. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead, ahead of you rather, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. <laughs> and they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. 
Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. And so the time has come for Jesus and the disciples to go to Jerusalem one final time, where, as we just read, everything the prophets have written about Jesus, the Son of Man, would be fulfilled. He'd be handed over to Gentiles. Of course, that's the Romans. He would be mocked, insulted, spit on, flogged, crucified. And ultimately, he would be resurrected from the dead. It would be a week filled with a flurry of activities and emotions, a week filled with triumph, confrontation, challenge, teaching, confusion, betrayal, agony, heartbreak, and ultimately great joy. But it all began on this road to Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. Of course, it was the Passover time in Jerusalem, which was a sacred time on the Jewish calendar because it celebrated the exodus of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. The most significant part of that celebration revolved around what happened on the night of the 10th plague. I know that you are probably familiar with the story. God's people had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, and one day God said enough, and he sent Moses to be the great deliverer, but Pharaoh, his heart was hard. He wouldn't let the people go, and so God brought 10 plagues on the Egyptians to try to get Pharaoh to relent. The 10th plague was the plague, rather, was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. And God gave his people these special instructions to sacrifice a, a spotless lamb and mark their doorposts with its blood. And then when the Lord passed through the land, he would pass over, pass over the household that showed the blood. So it was in a very real way the blood of the lamb that saved the Israelites from death in that day. The Egyptians didn't have the same instruction, and so the firstborn child of every family died. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 29 says, From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 30 goes on to say, And there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. You know, I've told you before that there are two kinds of prophecies in the Bible. There's what we call verbal predictive prophecy and typical prophecy. Verbal predictive prophecy is just what it sounds like. Verbally, somebody makes a prophetic prediction that comes true. Typical prophecy is when someone or something becomes a type or an example or a foreshadowing of something that's going to happen down the road. And what happened with the blood of the lamb that was placed on the doorposts of the Israelites' homes was the typical prophecy of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would come, and by his blood, he would save us as well. Well, it was Passover in Jerusalem. It happened every spring, and thousands upon thousands of people would travel to Jerusalem for the observance. I think I told you before about a census that was taken about 10 years after the time of the triumphal entry that determined the number of lambs sacrificed during the Passover would be around 260,000, 260,000 lambs. And because one lamb was allowed to be offered up for 10 people, it wasn't unreasonable to think that there would have been as many as 2 million people in the city of Jerusalem when Jesus came riding on a donkey that day. 
You add to that the excitement that people would have felt when they heard that this new rabbi, this, this new teacher, this new prophet that had done so many incredible things was coming to town, and you have the makings of an incredible event. And so when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people there to greet him. And just like we heard in our communion meditation tonight, they greeted him like a king. They spread their coats on the ground and shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's Luke's version. The triumphal entry is actually one of those events that's found in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Matthew, Mark, and John, we see that they also spread branches, palm branches on the ground, and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And that's a significant statement because it acknowledges just exactly who Jesus was as he came into Jerusalem that final time. He came as the king. He came as the king. He entered the city as the Messiah and the king. It was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that Cody read in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 as a part of our communion meditation. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I wish I had time to talk about that incredible event that Jesus entered the city as a king, but he did it in such humble fashion. Cody referred to that in his communion meditation. He didn't come in royal robes. He didn't ride in a royal coach. He didn't come in pomp or splendor or force. He came on the back of a donkey. And one of the reasons why was because Jesus was unlike any other earthly king. And that's what I really want to focus our attention on tonight as we think about the road to Jerusalem. The fact that when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on this final time in his life, he entered as a king, but unlike any other king. There are so many things we can talk about when it comes to this text. So many things associated with the triumphal entry. But there are two very simple and engaging things that I want us to think about. But before we talk about that, I want you to look back with me just a moment at verses 39 and 40 in our text. Luke chapter 19, verses 39 and 40, because I love this reference. Because of all of the, of the crowd, because of all of the shouting, because of all of the, of the adoration that was being shown to Jesus, verse 39 says some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're always there. They always have to speak up. The religious leaders in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I love Jesus' response in verse 40. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What do you think that means? If they keep quiet, the stones will crack. Clearly, the religious leaders were not happy. The Pharisees were not happy with the adoration that was being stone shown to Jesus, since they wanted the crowd to stop. But what did Jesus mean when he said, if they, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out? Well, my theological answer to that is I think it's Jesus referencing the reality of his deity. I mean, all of creation acknowledges the reality of who Jesus is. My practical, anyone can understand answer to what Jesus is meaning with those words 
is he's saying to these religious leaders, listen, you're not in control of this moment. I am. You're not in control of this moment. God is. And what God sets in motion, no one can stop. Somebody say amen to that tonight. Even though what's about to happen after this day is going to look like a dark and a tragic mistake, in the, from the very beginning, we understand that God is in complete control. But as I said, there are two things that are a part of this triumphal entry that really stand out to me today. They really stand out to me because they show us, just like seeing Jesus enter the city on the bank of a donkey, they show us that Jesus was no ordinary king. The first thing Jesus does when he enters the city of Jerusalem to all the shouts and all the adoration and all the accolades and all the worship, the first thing that he does we see in our text is he weeps. Did you notice that in the passage? He weeps. You go back to Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 42, and this is what you read. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. I want you to try and imagine that moment for Jesus. The crowd around him, numbering well into the thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, all shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the king of Israel. But Jesus knows the entire time that it's just a matter of days until this same crowd cries out, crucify him. And when Pilate offers up the prisoner Barabbas, instead of Jesus, they can choose whichever prisoner gets released. They cry for Barabbas because they want to see Jesus die. Even though he knows that the restoration that Israel, the nation of Israel has been waiting for and longing for for years and years and years is standing right in front of them, but they don't see it because ultimately they'll reject it because they will reject him even in the midst of that, even in the midst of all the incredible scene that surrounds him, his heart is broken and he begins to weep. That's not something that a king would normally do in the face of that kind of crowd. But Jesus is no ordinary king. Several years ago, when I lived in Oklahoma and I was a pastor of a church there, there was a woman in my church who was a Girl Scout troop leader. Now, I don't know much about Girl Scouts, never have, never have had any reason to. My daughter was never a Girl Scout. But I understand that you can be a Girl Scout even into your teenage years, or at least I learned that. And she had a troop of teenage girls and she asked me one day if I would come over to her house the next time her Girl Scout troop met and if I would bring my Bible and I would talk to these teenage girls about sexual purity. 
which seemed a little bit intimidating at the time. But I said, yes, I'll do that. I got to be honest with you and tell you how I was incredibly anxious about that. It was in my mind all the time, working up to that day and that day and that day. And I went to their home and I knocked on the door and they invited me in. There were only five girls that were there, probably between the ages of 14 and 16. And so we tried to keep it casual. We just sat down around a dinner table. We were all sitting around the table and I took my Bible and I opened it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the passage of scripture that I will often use when I talk about what God's will is related to sex and sexual chastity, purity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, going down to verse 8 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you this Holy Spirit. And I began from the very beginning, verse 3, to work my way verse by verse, line by line, through that text by way of explanation. I like the way it starts in verse 3 when it says, quite honestly, right up front, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. The two words sexual immorality come from a single word in the original language of the New Testament. It's the Greek word porneia, and it just means any kind of illicit sexual activity. And friends, according to the Bible, any kind of illicit sexual activity is any sexual activity that takes place outside of a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the explanation of the scriptures. That's what it says. I also like the real practical way this verse speaks about what that sexual immorality can look like when you get further down in verse 6 where it says, and, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. Again, I'm reading from a modern English translation of the Bible. And in verse 6, the words take advantage are one single word in the Greek language. They are the word hooperbaino. And the word hooperbaino literally means passing over or crossing the line that divides right from wrong. And so it was really easy for me to talk to those girls and say that when it comes to sexual purity, when it comes to sexual intimacy, God has a line, and on one side of the line is right, and on the other side of the line is wrong. That's simple to understand. Wouldn't you agree? Easy to understand. The entire time I was talking, there was a girl seated directly across the table from me. And let me tell you something, friends. She was not having it. Everything about her facial expressions, everything about her body language was shouting to me the entire time, no, I'm not having it. And the first opportunity she got to speak, she looked at me and she said, I don't see why my boyfriend and I can't do whatever we want, including having sex, we love each other, and we're not hurting anyone. And so now it's my turn to respond. And I'm not responding with an explanation of Scripture now. I'm responding to her 
challenge, so to speak. And so armed with all my Bible knowledge and armed with all my years of experience and all of my wisdom, this is embarrassing for me to admit, but this is what I did. I started to cry. I couldn't help it. It's the last thing I wanted to do. But that's what I did. As I sat there overwhelmed by the awkwardness of the moment and the significance of the moment, I began to cry. Because I have spent a lot of time over the years talking to people who had stepped over or crossed over that line of right and wrong when it came to God's gift of sexual intimacy, and they faced devastating consequences as a result. In fact, devastating may not be a strong enough word. Some of the hardest, most difficult moments of my life have been with husbands and wives where one confessed infidelity to the other. And I saw the betrayal and the brokenness of the moment. Now, honestly, I don't remember what I said after that. I really don't. But I'm never, ever going to forget that moment. And here's why I tell you that story tonight. Again, I want you to try to get this picture, this image of Jesus in your mind. As he's surrounded by a crowd that are throwing their cloaks and palm branches on the ground and they're shouting praise and adoration to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. While they're cheering him and celebrating him, he's looking over the city of Jerusalem and he's weeping. And if you can get that picture in your mind, then I would follow up by asking you this question. How thankful are you that we have a God who weeps? How thankful are you that we have a God who weeps over people who make terrible decisions? He weeps over people who resist his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace. How thankful are all of us to have a God who weeps over people who are just one decision away from complete restoration, the complete restoration of their lives, and yet for whatever reason they refuse to surrender. I've always been an emotional person. If you've gone to church here for any length of time, you know that's true. I actually do not like that part of my life. I hate it sometimes, but I will always be thankful, forever be thankful for a God, for a king who has invested so deeply in the people that he created and the people that he loves and the people that he longs to have fellowship with that he weeps over us day after day after day. That's what Jesus did as a king The second thing that he did is he restores. And I would reference Luke chapter 19, verses 45 and 46 for this. Because the next thing that Jesus does is recorded in these verses. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Why is that so significant? 
Well, the obvious reason is because the religious leaders were abusing the temple to line their pockets. And they did this primarily by setting up booths in the temple where they exchanged currency and they sold sacrifices. Think about that in relation to the Passover. You've got tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem from other places... And just like when we go to other countries today, they had to exchange their currency so that they would be able to have the ability to buy food or find lodging or whatever they needed while they were there. Because they were coming to Jerusalem at the Passover, they would need to have a sacrificial animal. Sometimes they would bring a sacrificial animal with them. It had to be a spotless animal, but it had to be inspected in the temple. And oftentimes, these priests that were lining their pockets in the temple would reject the sacrifice that they brought and then sell them one at an exorbitant rate. That's what they were doing. They were cheating the people. They were robbing from them. And they were doing it in the temple. The temple was everything to the Jewish people. It was the center of their lives. And the most important part of that was it was the center of their faith. It was the center when it came to their relationship with God, it's where they met God, it's where they worshiped God, it's where they brought their offerings to God, and on and on and on. This was happening in the temple. But these religious leaders whose hearts were so far from God had turned it into something that had no resemblance to what it was intended by God to be. So Jesus, who's coming as the king, walks in the temple and takes action to restore it to the place that God had always intended it to be. He got rid of the money changers and he got rid of the, those selling sacrifices. He overturned their tables and he drove them out. And here's why. Because he came to Jerusalem as a king and as a king he was saying it's time for a change. As a king he was saying enough. Things need to change. In fact, you could summarize everything Jesus did in the temple by saying that he was restoring to the temple to a place of bridges that connected you with God instead of barriers that kept you from God. The religious leaders who cared about nothing but themselves, they never wept over anyone, had taken a place that was built to draw people to God and turned it into a place that actually made it difficult for people to find God and in some cases kept people from God. They did it with their hypocrisy. They did it with their hunger for power. They did it with their greed. And they did it with a staggering lack of love and concern for their fellow man. And all the while, the people were longing for God. They were desperate for a genuine experience with God, a genuine relationship with God. That was made clear by the way people responded to Jesus during his earthly ministry. They were longing for something that was real. And so Jesus comes along as king and he says, enough. No more barriers that keep people from God. Can you see the practical application to the church today? I can't imagine any church coming out and openly saying, our goal more than anything else is to keep people out. But that's what can happen on a practical level when a church doesn't really love or care about people, which is the first step to helping people experience the love of God. 
In fact, I'll tell you tonight, I'm convinced that a church filled with people who genuinely love and care about others, no matter who they are, I believe that will be an irresistible church because that genuine love will help people find the love of God. You can say all you want about the church needing to be culturally relevant. You can throw out every buzzword that the latest church growth consultant or the latest church growth conference throws around, but nothing will ever be more attractive and nothing will ever be more winsome when it comes to pointing people to God than just loving them in a genuine way. And somebody should say amen to that. You know, I can tell when somebody doesn't love me. How about you? I don't have any trouble telling when some people doesn't care about me. I think that's probably true for all of us. Churches should be different. Just like Jesus as the king was different. Churches should be a place where people find a bridge to God that starts with love. But that's not what Jesus found in the temple when he walked that road to Jerusalem that we call the triumphal entry. And so he said, enough. He said, it's time to build bridges to God. And we're going to see that in the coming days. You already know that. Jesus became the bridge to God. He became the bridge to God when he was nailed on a cross with his arms outstretched to welcome everyone who comes to him Because Jesus isn't a king who takes. Jesus is a king who gives. And so what are we going to take from this Palm Sunday weekend? What are we going to take from this Palm Sunday worship? Remember that game I told you about created by Parker Brothers back in the mid-1950s called Going to Jerusalem? If you're going to really embrace what it means to walk with Jesus, and in the context of this weekend, what it means to travel with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, then you have to be willing to embrace the life that he calls you to, and the life that he calls you to is the life that he lives. A life where you're willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. A life where you make the conscious choice to live like him, A life where you embrace his mission to love people, all people, no matter who they are, no matter where they've been or what they've done. Love them enough to give them the opportunity to experience the life-changing love of God. That's what you have to do if you're going to walk with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. I want you to pray with me tonight. Father in heaven, I thank you for some time to just open up the Bible and talk about a familiar story. And I hope that uh, you would speak to our hearts about the truth, the reality that Jesus was no ordinary king, that he was different. And I hope that you'll challenge us to embrace the life that Jesus calls us to live. Thank you that you are so invested in us.
as our God, as our creator, that you were willing to come down into this world and to suffer and die so that we might have an opportunity for eternal fellowship with you. Thank you that you are a God who weeps over our lives, the lives of people who are lost. Help us to feel that same passion for lost people. And thank you that you are a God who builds bridges, not barriers, so that we can come to you anytime. We love you and we praise you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.